our verse comes from James 1, 19 through 27. And just so that you can stew on it for a little bit uh, before we dive deeper into it. Uh, it goes, you must understand this. My beloved brothers and sisters, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For human anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourself of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness. And welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Please pray with me. Uh, God, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for the chance to... Uh, be here as a community and the opportunity to, uh, you know, possibly walk or bike and, um, yeah, just use our bodies to, to exercise and to breathe in the fresh air and to travel and to be near the places we need to go and have that accessibility and opportunity. Uh, I pray this morning as we lean into these ideas of sustainability and resiliency um, that we can be challenged in really meaningful ways. Uh, and assess and, and evaluate how we're showing up um, for ourselves, for other people, and also just this world we live in. Um, all these things we thank and uh, pray in your son's name. Amen. Uh, I've mentioned this a few times. A big catalyst for me, even uh, working at a church, going to seminary, is that I used to work at a Christian camp in Wisconsin in my early 20s for like four to five summers. Uh, and I just really enjoyed working with high school students. Uh, I felt like I was good at it. It was meaningful. And like every year going to business school and then going to camp, I was like, huh, camp's a lot better than business school. And so I went to seminary. Uh, and, and the rest is history. Here I am. Um, our camp model we had at this particular camp was that for three weeks at a time, we would have 16 to 20 high school students uh, and about six or seven adult staff. And they'd live on site together. Um, and it was like a mile down the road from any other responsible adults. And uh, it was really great. We had hiking trips, canoe trips, uh, small group time. Um, and for folks in the room who uh, remember Pyro, <laughs> time at camp is really meaningful. It's really transformative. It's how, you know, you, you, you grow as a person, you grow in community. So uh, you get it. We'll, we'll bring back Pyro someday, maybe. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> But three weeks with that many high schoolers in one place, it definitely had a breakfast club vibe. Like they had different personalities, different reasons for being there. Like they were excited or they were made to be there. But either way, they, they spent those three weeks exploring who they were as people, uh, exploring their faith, exploring the northern woods of Wisconsin. And without fail, after the 21 days, it'd be like a mini family. Uh, and something we did during those three weeks pretty classic activity in not just Christian communities, but also a lot of other groups as well, uh, as we invited campers to share their uh, parts of their life story, uh, their testimonies, if you will, at, at evening campfire. Um, 
you know, opportunity to hear from each other, learn more about others, maybe hear how God might be moving in people's lives. Uh, and for the most part, it was good. Uh, it was pretty eclectic. Uh, if, if folks are folks familiar with Dude Perfect. <laughs> Uh, my, my oldest son really loves them. My nieces and nephew love them too. They're just like five guys from Texas who like never grew up. Uh, and they like are known for just crazy trick shots and goofy videos. And they have one segment, it's called Stereotypes, where they just kind of poke fun and tease the different ways we do things. So an example would be like airplane passenger stereotypes. And you've got the person who's super comfy with like the neck pillow and like the weighted blanket or like person who can't take a hint passenger, right? And they try to talk to you even though you don't know them and you put your AirPods in, they're still telling a story. Shoes and socks off person, right? <laughs> well, I feel like uh, the guys at Dude Perfect could have easily made like a, a testimony stereotypes video where it's just like the person who's like super eager to share, they gotta be the first one, and then it's like one minute long. <laughs> they just had to be first, it was like a competition. Uh, or like the really inspirational ones where like without fail, people are like grabbing the Kleenex and like everything transformed, not just for that person, for the rest of us for even hearing it. Um, the really long ones with unnecessary details. <laughs> like first grade was hard, I got bangs, and then <laughs> here's that how it impacted my faith. <laughs> Right? It's like 30 minutes in. <laughs> I didn't know how to cut those off. Um, but for the most part, hearing life stories around the campfire was a good thing. But unfortunately, friends, the key phrase in that last sentence is for the most part. Um, not all of it was great. Okay? In fact, some of the things shared by the students um, was pretty shocking. And, and not shocking because of what they said. Uh, it was shocking because it turned out some of the campers were just straight up lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shocking. <laughs> All right. Uh, and I, I remember the first time it, like that, that idea, that concept even hit us. Um, there's a quiet camper uh, telling his story talking about how his families were missionaries in another country and um, like disaster hit and they were on a plane that got hijacked and like when they got there they lived on this compound that was not safe to leave because people wanted to kill them because they were missionaries and he saw his friend die and naturally the camp director and the rest of us were like I hope this kid's okay like we reached out to, their, to his family like hey is, is he all right? Is he getting support at home? This is a lot of trauma to process. And his family was like, what are you talking about? None of that is true. He lives in central Wisconsin. <laughs> right? Uh, I'll never forget the camper really early on in camp. Um, things were really hard. She was talking about being a, a teen mom and her family excommunicated her. Right? Unacceptable. Like shame upon the family. Um, and we spent those three weeks really trying to like build her up and encourage her. And I remember the camp director, he was like convicted afterwards. He's like, I got to find this girl's parents. And like, what are you doing? Like, she's still your daughter. You got to be there for her regardless of what happened. And again, the story wasn't true. <laughs> Those baby pictures we saw at camp were baby pictures of this uh, camper's cousin's kid. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget when we found out as camp counselors, like, it was like emotional nausea. <laughs> It's just like everything we just like did the last three weeks and tried to support this, this camper, it was all meaningless. Um, or it was for reasons that we didn't think they were for. So right there, I do want to pause. I want to make it clear. I don't really want to speak poorly of these students. You know, in, in one sense, 
you know, we probably could have done a better job of setting up uh, what that time looked like. What is the point of sharing your story? And hopefully it comes across that it's important to be truthful because like you want to connect with folks, you want them to, to, to know the real you. Uh, and also, um, let's be honest, camp's kind of weird, right? Like, especially for three weeks at a time, like on the one hand, it's a great opportunity. You can like shed the baggage of like who you were at home, all the peer pressure, all the like societal standards you think there were, and be your truest version of yourself and like see how life giving that is. Uh, on the flip side, it could be an opportunity to like just have a social experiment with people you'll never see again and uh, just see, see what happens, which is what they did. Um, so for me, the more important question is why? Why would a student, a high school student, when given the opportunity to talk about themselves, maybe share how God has been moving in their lives and talk about their faith, decide to come up with the most outlandish story possible. Why would they do that? And, and just so you know, it wasn't just those two examples. I can think of countless pretty wild stories that I heard uh, around the campfire. Which I guess, as I say that out loud now, makes me wonder how many of them were true <laughs> because we didn't follow up with everyone's family. <laughs> I think the reason that a lot of students uh, decide to come up with these Hollywood-esque stories is partly because of today's theme, faith and resiliency. Like many of the stories we hear in the Bible, you know, whether it was Saul being temporarily blinded on the road to Damascus and having this life-changing experience, or all the people Jesus healed, lepers and people who couldn't walk, the blind, or even just Lazarus being resurrected from the grave. I think either consciously or subconsciously, we equate the impressiveness or significance of our faith with the impressiveness or significance of our story and the resiliency we've had to show to overcome hardship. The deeper the pain, the more inspirational the story, right? The wilder the details, the more amazing tale we have of redemption. Students didn't want to be boring. I still remember some of the campers being a little sheepish and being slightly embarrassed when their testimony was like, I grew up in a really great Christian family. I'm really close to all my family. Nothing bad has really happened to me. And my faith is still important to me. <laughs> the end. Uh, and that's not a bad story, but they, were, <laughs> they felt a little uh, embarrassed sharing it. So maybe the paradigm shift we need to have is that while resiliency we've shown in the past is absolutely important. It's part of our story. It's what shaped us. Maybe when we talk about resiliency as a community, we can focus on the resiliency we can show as a people of faith, uh, both right now and in the future. And that might even mean we, we redefine or rethink about what resiliency in our faith looks like. So this book written in James, uh, it's unique in that it's not like targeting or addressing a specific early church community. Uh, it's basically James outlining uh, what he's learned about being a Jesus follower. And he really leans into works and like what you do, which is why Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. He really hated it. Um, but James is essentially asking questions like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And who are you knowing what you know about who God is? Like, how do you show up in the world knowing all those things? So he's trying to get in people's business, and he's challenging the way that people live their lives. And he offers up a lot of practical nuggets. And one I really like um, is when he differentiates hearers who forget and doers 
who act. Hearers who forget and doers who act. And he emphasizes the importance of processing, processing and internalizing what you hear and then acting accordingly. Right? Not just like hearing something and then just going about your day like nothing's changed, but being transformed. It's, it's the classic faith, faith without works is dead. And he uses this imagery of someone looking in the mirror and then walking away and forgetting what they look like. And I really like that comparison. So mirror, mirrors are a big deal, right? If you think about it, looking in the mirror is like the only time you can actively uh, engage and analyze our physical selves. I remember being like little Andrew and like, like when I saw the reflection and like being drawn to like, oh, this is what everyone else sees when they see me. And like practicing like my goofy faces in the mirror and like trying to perfect them. Um, I also remember in elementary school, uh, the first time a classmate of mine ran up to me in the playground and did like the slanty-eyed face and like laughed. And what I remember most is like being confused. I was like, all right, it sounds like they're making fun of me. What's the joke? And like going home that night and using the mirror to like analyze my eyes and look at my face. And then picturing all the eyes of my classmates and then it dawned on me. And I was like, oh, my eyes are way different than everyone else's eyes. And then from that moment on, the mirror introduced being self-conscious. I remember being a teenager and hating zits. I was just, I would just pop every one of them, even though you're not supposed to. And then I'd really hate like the red irritated aftermath. And so from then on, it's just like, uh, I just assumed what I saw in the mirror and all the imperfections and all the things I didn't like, that's what everyone else saw when they saw me. They saw the slanted eyes, they saw the pop zits. And it wasn't just physical attributes, it became value-based things, right? Oh, if I'm Asian, or if I'm different, or if I have zits, I must not be liked, I must not matter. So to me, the power in James's metaphor with the mirror is, what story are we telling ourselves? And from that story, how are we living? So do we see ourselves as God sees us, as a beloved child of God, full of worth and creativity and wonder? And then do we live from that place, from that wonderful foundation? Or do we forget that truth and we start looking for meaning and validation and identity from any and everywhere else? And we might let others dictate who or what we see in the mirror. I know that's what I did. And then we live from that, from that place. We live from that awful foundation. But friends, the goal here in James is not just behavioral modification. It's about transformation that betters the world. James is talking about us looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty or of being free. And he says if we persevere, or if we are resilient, we will be hopefully embodying pure religion, which James says is caring for orphans and widows in their distress and not being stained by the world. So if you want the Andrew interpretation of what he's saying, he's saying our identity should be in God. We shouldn't get caught up in the world's structures of power and priorities and ways of vowing people. And as we learn what it means to lean into that and be free people redeemed by God, we should seek the freedom of others and help the most vulnerable people in their moments of greatest need. I'm still thinking about what Sarah said about climate justice and how it's not just about the planet, but it impacts those around us. And the folks in greatest need impacted the most by it. 
Friends, to me, this is the long, never-ending process of faith and resiliency. It's not just a season of our lives that was hard or tragic. And again, those are important seasons. I know I have my own. But it's how do we persist and commit to doing all these things well? Knowing our identity, trying to live into that identity, wanting that for others and fighting for it, all while trying to help those with the most need. I mean, my head hurts just describing it. Like, how can anyone be expected to do all those things really well? And if I'm going to be really transparent, this is where I really struggle. Really struggle being either a Christ follower, being a person of faith, or, or even being, uh, being here at church. Because to try to do all these things well, it just seems like there's so many tensions to balance. Right? Like on the one hand, the Bible is really clear on how self-sacrificial we should be in relation to helping the marginalized. Yet sometimes it feels like we only sort of do it. For some of us, we get really overwhelmed with how many injustices there are in the world. With others, like the lane is just being numb, not really thinking about it. And for others, we just we focus on our spheres of influence and we help in manageable ways, which is great. That's a good thing. But at the same time, it feels like progress is slow. It feels like we're not super close to fully embodying this radical care for the needy that James and much of the Bible and, and Jesus all talk about. There's also tension, I feel, in how we as people of faith disagree about so much. We get caught up in our arguments. Some people leave. We get caught up in the politics. And then really what people who might not see eye to eye with me. In church, we're also trying to do all these things together, so we will never move as quickly or as slowly as people think we ought to move. How do we balance good intentions with what's actually happening? How do we balance trying to be patient and helping others develop while also taking care of ourselves and making sure we don't burn out? Figuring out how to do these things well and persisting despite all these tensions is a type of resiliency and faith that resonates with me. Intention doesn't have to be a bad thing. I had a conversation with my brother-in-law, Tom, yesterday, and he reminded me with guitar strings, you actually need that tension to play beautiful music, to play chords. Al, can, I, can, can you vouch for that? Is there music to play chords? Al, can, I, can, can you vouch for that? Is there tension when you play? Okay, thank you. So my point is I believe we could use the most resiliency in our faith and our ability to stand firm in the difficulties of conflict and change both now and in the future. Can we be resilient in our commitment to wanting to transform ourselves for the better so that we can help transform the world for the better and not just view people through the lens of society, but view them through the lens of God? Can we lift up each other's humanities? Can we tangibly help people in life-changing ways with no strings attached? And friends, I, I have a lot more questions than answers this morning. So hopefully you didn't come this morning looking for a lot of answers. But I do feel strongly that how we answer these questions determine our ability to actually be the church. And if we can do these things well, if we can get there together as a faith community, that 
is the type of story I think we can all be excited to share. Please pray with me. God, this morning as we're thinking about resiliency in our faith and as we think about sustainability, I think as we live in the tension, as we try to figure out a path forward, perhaps one of the things to keep in mind is that we are people. We are people. Not everything is in our control. (laughs) You are God. And in a sense, having hope and having faith is not having all the answers not being able to actively determine what happens. And sometimes that's a scary thing. Sometimes that's, a, that's something that, that is frustrating. And sometimes it can be a comforting thing. So God, my prayer this morning for all of us is that we're not just hearers who forget, but we're doers who act. And even when we feel hopeless and even when we feel overwhelmed, we find those steps. We find those steps to bring heaven to earth. We find those steps to bring joy and love to people. We find those steps to better ourselves so we can be more of the people you made us to be. And I pray we could do this together well. All these things we pray in your son's name. Amen.